If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In the early 20th century, the colonial regimes that ruled much of Asia were under attack. Underground networks of revolutionaries stretched across the continent and the globe, organising acts of resistance ranging from increased political education and non-violent agitation to assassinations and bomb plots. This clandestine struggle is chronicled by Tim Harper in his book Underground Asia. It's recently been shortlisted for the Kundal History Prize, of which History Extra is a media partner. I spoke to him to find out more. Your book, it looks at underground anti-imperialist revolutionary movements in Asia between 1905 and 1927. So why was this such a ripe period for insurgency across the Asian continent? I think for, for two reasons. One, this was when colonial rule was really being felt uh, on the ground. It was no longer imperialists in London or Berlin drawing lines on a map. This was when new taxes, new uh, forced labour programmes were really beginning to, to bite in colonial societies across Asia. In China, when it was a period when China was trying to, to, to modernise and overthrow its dependency on the West. And I think for a second reason, and this is the focus of the book, this was a moment when uh, nationalist-minded uh, figures from Asia were beginning to travel more widely to Europe, to the States, across Asia it- itself, and begin to discover what they had in common. Uh, in the words of one of these figures, that they were suffering from the same sickness, the sickness being imperial rule. So you're covering quite a broad span here, aren't you, really? Can you give us a sense of the countries that you're you're talking about? Well, I, I, I cover in detail countries from uh, uh, South Asia right across to East Asia, Japan. But the, the scope of the book is, is truly global and in ways I didn't anticipate. For example, one of the leading Indian revolutionaries um, really uh, comes to embrace communism through a sojourn in in Mexico. He travels to Moscow to attend the first, uh, second meeting, really, of the Communist International uh, as a representative of the Communist Party of Mexico, of which he's a founder member. So the past these people take a truly global uh, in scope. 
Yeah, and we might talk about some of those global journeys later on. So the term that we've used so far, revolutionary, it's quite broad brushstrokes, isn't it? It could cover a lot of things. So what kind of revolutionaries are you looking at here? Did they all share a consistent vision for for what they wanted from the revolution for Asia? No, far from it. And I think this what is what gives this period a kind of unity in a way, because this was a time of great ideological flux. It was a time when revolutionaries were taking from all sorts of uh, influences. And I suppose what they had in common was uh, an unwillingness, I think, to work within colonial rule, within the very limited representative institutions or the limited ways in which colonial rulers tried to incorporate some of their colonial subjects. They tried to break with that and wanted to take more direct action to actually overthrow uh, European empires. And that, for, for many, meant a path of, of violence, a violent resistance to colonial rule which they justified in many different ways, not least because colonial rule, uh, especially in its early original form, was tremendously violent in what it wreaked on Asian societies. But these people were very, very diverse and disagreed on on, on these questions all, all the time. Could you highlight some key moments in this struggle? Well, I think the story really begins when, in, in 19, around 1905, when Asian intellectuals begin travelling uh, overseas in search of ideas and support for national struggles. And so the first centre for the book is Japan, which is emerging as a, as, as a global power, having defeated uh, Russia in a war, and becomes a, a, a great uh, a site for education, and interaction between Asian radicals, where they begin to uh, see each other and identify what they have in common. Then the story perhaps shifts to European and North American cities in the years before uh, the First World War, as these become sites for education, for political movements, such as the, the importance of the Gadar movement of Indian exiles from the Pacific states of America and Canada, in the years before and during the First World War. But then the focus becomes Moscow, as many of these movements become recruited, many of these leaders become active participants in the Communist International in the 1920s. But Moscow's not a centre for long, because very quickly these movements go back to, to Asia. The 20s are the years of return when Indian nationalists begin to try and get back to attack the Raj uh, in South Asia, Indonesian uh, radicals form the first communist party in Asia, uh, and uh, China becomes the epicenter for the world revolution in the mid-1920s. And these struggles reach a sort of connected crescendo in, in 1927. Why do you identify 1927 as the crescendo of this movement? Well, uh, that is a high point of activity, particularly with the communist rebellion, again, the first in Asia, in Indonesia, in Java and Sumatra in 1926-27. The high point of communist cooperation with the nationalists in in China, which ends in a, a bitter a military struggle in the uh, middle of 1927, and a more general sort of concerted colonial uh, mopping up of these movements, which lasts into the early 1930s when uh, uprisings in Indochina are defeated and uh, popular process in India begin to ebb for a while. 
I wonder if you could give us some examples of uh, the activities that dissidents got involved in across Asia. Well, they range really from very peaceful activities. Uh, what a lot of them had in common was a commitment to education, education independent of uh, uh, of colonial institutions, what the colonial powers often called wild, wild schools, night schools, local schools, uh, grassroots education, uh, and above all, to political uh, education. And many of these ideas of political education were pioneered in some of the, the great port cities of Asia where nationalists came to, to congregate and met, meet people from far away, right through to very violent collective acts, collected revolution, sometimes in a Leninist sense, sometimes in a more sort of romantic sense of a popular uprising against the colonial power, and some of them in embracing anarchism in forms of anarchist direct action. Some of these were peaceable, like syndicalism. Others were involved bomb plots, assassinations, uh, you know, very, very, very violent and direct and shocking acts. As you stated earlier, this was an age of big ideas, of ideologies. And of course, one of the central ideologies at play in this struggle was, was communism and Bolshevism. How did Asian insurgents become connected to global communist networks? In a variety uh, of ways. The communism perhaps was not the, the, the earliest idea to have a general uh, appeal. I think anarchism itself, the various forms of anarchism, were very prevalent in Asia before uh, Leninism and Bolshevism were, were words that had reached out to, to, to Asia. As for the communist affiliation, some were just drawn directly to Moscow, actively recruited. I mentioned uh, an Indian revolutionary in Mexico, M.N. Roy. He was directly recruited to uh, attend meetings in, in Moscow uh, in the days quite soon after the Bolshevik Revolution. But often Asian revolutions just heard about it. It was a, a, a rumour, a story of great events, of regimes toppling down, of a whole empire turning upside down. And it was an imaginative connection rather than a, rather than a direct one. That makes me think of something you say in the book. There was this idea, a kind of sense in the air of there being change possible and opportunities available. What do you think was behind that that sense of of something about to happen? That's a really good question. And I think what comes up in the writings of these revolutionaries time and time again is the idea that this is an age uh, in transition. Uh, the Indonesian radicals, the Javanese radicals, had a, a word for it. They called it an age in motion, a world of constant movement in where what could be on top could rapidly be turned upside down. And this sense of sort of flux, of change, of changes between generations, of changes between uh, epochs, that was a, that was a very uh, a general sort of feeling. And this strong sense of generation that they were born into a generation that had a capacity to change history, to, to be at the cutting edge of, of change was a very powerful conviction and kept them going even when conditions uh, were, were very much against them. We've spoken about Asian revolutionaries being plugged into to wider global networks. 
And I'm intrigued as to how that benefited them. So do you think that they got something from those global networks that they wouldn't have had, say, if these movements were just localised or nationalised? Yeah, they got many things. Sometimes they they wanted uh, alliance at the time of the First World, World War. Uh, various of these groups looked to, to Germany, particularly Indian radicals in Berlin, looked to Germany to help them launch a uh, a military uprising uh, in India. But what really, I think, strikes me and what I found most interesting was the way they drew strength from each other and inspiration from each other and sometimes uh, active assistance from each other. So you get Indian and Chinese uh, radical networks cooperating to some extent across the uh, Pacific. Uh, you get radicals in Southeast Asia borrowing ideas of protests such as boycott that was used very uh, effectively in the early days of revolution in China. So it's this learning from borrowing, adapting, I think, is a, is, 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 is a great sense of inspiration and a great resource for these people. So it was about ideas and resources, both of them. Yeah, both of them together. Intellectual sustenance and and active physical help in moving around secretly and in moving money and guns uh, uh, secretly. And and these clandestine networks, which often link to those of organised crime and smuggling, that's what gives the what I call the Asian underground its its particular sort of flavour, I think, in this period. So if these networks were operating under the radar, they were clandestine, how do you go about as a historian piecing all of them together? Because surely by their very nature, they were meant to be hidden and not well documented. You you would think so. Um, But but I think the opposite is the case. Some of these most shadowy individuals are some of the best documented people of their time, partly because the colonial powers were obsessed by them and, and even shared intelligence, shared policing to track people across vast uh, global uh, distances. Uh, and also the, these revolutionaries were very um, adept in telling their own stories at the time in creating roles of martyrs that would appeal to re- recruits and to ground the struggle um, in, in, the, in the memory of, of the, the heroic people who came before them. So, uh, and, and later on with more sort of modern forms of autobiography uh, and memoir, they left brilliant writings behind many of them. And also in colonial archives, not only the police reports, but the colonial powers seized anarchist pamphlets, uh, trade union regulations, uh, intercepted correspondence, and this was kept and translated uh, on a scale that you normally wouldn't find for, for people. So, you know, if you begin to triangulate all of these kinds of different sources, a lot of information emerge of it, emerges. A lot of it can be misleading, and that's part of the, you know, the excitement for this as a, as a, as a historian. Well, I wanted to ask you about those colonial powers that you get some of those sources from. How successful were colonial police forces, for example, at cracking down on dissidents and insurgency? Increasingly uh, so, I I think. And and they do so often by uh, working through networks of, of local informants, by having their their sort of informers inside these underground uh, networks. 
And the revolutionaries themselves are, are very aware of this. And it's a sort of cat and mouse game that each play with the other. Uh, for, for, for example, uh, one of the, the most famous of these characters, Ho Chi Minh, first comes on the radar of the, the police in France in 1919 when uh, he writes uh, a letter to Woodrow Wilson and other great leaders who gathered in Paris for the Versailles Peace Conference after the First World War to demand freedom for uh, Vietnam. Uh, But this sets the police on his trail. They track his activities over the years uh, previously, which seem to have taken him all across the oceans to America, uh, to Africa. And there's all sorts of stories about these these movements. And they track him henceforth for the rest of his, his life. But they do so by inserting people into the social circles in which he moves in Paris, by trying to engage him in conversation about his origin, eavesdropping on the conversation of others in cafes and so on. So there's a sort of underground of police informing and the underground of the revolutionaries themselves uh, overlap. And people are very aware of that. And what is quite intriguing to me is one sort of builds up the other. The, the fact that the police are interested in this man in Paris, this random stranger who nobody knows where he comes from, they, they, they become convinced he's important in some way. And by following, tracking him, they almost give him an importance or help feed his importance in the circles he's moving. He he plays off the, the aura of, of this throughout his career, even when he emerges as a national leader at the end of the Second War. World War under the name of Ho Chi Minh. And the same policeman who discovers who Ho Chi Minh is in, in the 40s is the same policeman who tracked him in Paris in 1919. So there's, there's a curious uh, symbiotic relationship between policing and insurgency, which I, I find really uh, intriguing. That is intriguing. So what you said there about them almost reinforcing his status, do you think that the police then overestimated the threat of insurgents. Is in, that what you're saying? In Bella? many in many cases they do. They follow people who aren't important. They become obsessed with minor co- conspiracies that lead uh, nowhere. And that becomes the central problem for the police. You know, these people could be nothing, but they just might be something. And just not knowing where these people are going to strike and who's going to turn up to be the crucial link in the chain, I think, uh, feeds colonial sort of paranoia about this. And of course, this is a a well-known strategy of protest. It's an anarchist strategy that you don't know when the assassin will strike. And that, 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 that sort of sense of imminent threat all the time is a a key aspect of modern terror. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. These stories come and go. That's the nature of the underground, the image of it as this sort of mole of subversion that you know, dives, takes a deep dive into hiding, then can emerge in different places at different times. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. 
Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Some of the figures in your book, like Ho Chi Minh, who we just discussed, will be really familiar to listeners. But I think that a lot of them will be less familiar to listeners, especially outside of Asia. Who were some of the key figures that might not be so well known outside of Asia today? Well, some of these might be better known in their own countries than they are uh, internationally. But one of the the key figures for the book for me is an Indonesian radical and intellectual called uh, Tan Malaka, who uh, was educated uh, in the Netherlands, briefly was uh, an early member of the Communist Party of Indonesia, the first Communist Party in Asia in the early 1920s in Java and Sumatra, but then goes into exile for uh, 20 years, is recruited by Moscow, becomes uh, uh, quite important to discussions within the Communist International about how far, far communist and Islamic revolutionaries should work together. He spends our time in China, writes lots of uh, important uh, theoretical books about revolution that trickle back to his homeland, but doesn't uh, really go, go back to Indonesia until the early 1940s, when Indonesia is occupied by the Japanese. And only after the war does he reveal himself as, as Tan Malaka, as the, in a way the once and future king of Indonesian uh, nationalism. And he's a cult figure. He's interesting because in the 30s, when he really disappears underground and from view, he becomes a figure of popular fiction, of, of sort of dime detective novels in Indonesia, an Asian scarlet pimpernel, a pajamera in Indonesia, cropping up here, there, fighting injustice, being connected to all sorts of international plots. So there's a tremendous mystique uh, builds up and he becomes a key player uh, the ultimately a tragic one in the Indonesian Revolution of 1945 to 49. He's actually killed by Indonesian revolutionaries in 1949 and, and is buried in an unmarked, uh, what for many years is an unmarked grave. So f- 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 forgotten for many years, but now coming back, I think, in focus as a hero of the independence struggle in Indonesia. And Tam Malaka isn't the only figure that you talk about that spent long stretches of this period in exile. I'm intrigued as to how you could affect change from so far away. Was it primarily through writing and, um, you know, distributing ideas? How could a revolutionary in exile affect things back in their home country? Those are key, key, thing, key things in the very elaborate ways of trying to evade colonial 
censorship, you know, of putting political tracts inside, uh, you know, novels and smuggling back into India or Indonesia or something. That becomes very important. But also, in, in, in a way, European cities become uh, safer spaces in which to operate. A man like Ho Chi Minh would face a capital trial in uh, uh, in Vietnam, but in Paris he can operate more or less openly, lobby government offices, he even gets a meeting with the, the colonial minister, he attends public meetings, distributes his pamphlets, he's thoroughly annoying, but he's not so easy to to, to lock up in France, where he's really committed no crime, as he would have been to uh, to lock up in, in in his home country. So part of the Asian underground is trying to work out where where will be a free, promising space through which to mobilise ideas, periodicals, resources, uh, uh, by arms, yeah, for the struggle mm. back at home. Um, so that's, that's the key calculus, I think. So the figures that we've talked about so far have been men, but women did also play a role in some of these movements. Uh, you share a really notable story, actually, of of an incident involving a woman called the bobbed-haired woman. I wonder if you could share that and tell us a bit about the the role of women in, in these movements. It's important in many ways. Uh, it's important to me because this was the, you know, the eureka moment in an archive where uh, I really got thinking seriously about this book and it's taken me a long time to 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 write it uh, in an archive in in France the French colonial archive in Aix-en-Provence I find a, I found a file about uh, a woman who had walked into a government uh, office in early 1925 in Kuala Lumpur which is then part of the British colony of Malaya asked to see a colonial civil servant and handed him a briefcase which uh, promptly exploded. She was a suicide bomber. Um, the, 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 she didn't achieve in, in killing anybody. She maimed herself and maimed uh, the official, but she stood trial. And, and at the trial, she had a lot of local uh, press coverage and a fascination for her as a bobbed-haired woman, in that she was a, a modern woman uh, with a haircut and dressed in a very modern way. And the modern woman, the, the, the bobbed hair woman, becomes a bit of a phenomenon across Asia, in Japan, in, 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 in China, across Southeast Asia. The very different versions of this, and they're seen as very threatening to the existing order, potentially uh, anarchists, um, very sort of dis- discomforting to male authority. But to me, this is a, a wider point. Women were crucial uh, to these networks, but um, their, their, their stories often haven't been heard. They're often neglected in the memoirs of the, the men who were the larger part of these uh, n- networks. Uh, they were often uh, written out by uh, subsequent sort of historical uh, tellings of them. But in keeping these uh, networks alive as careers, often as thinkers, as, as active agents, as the Bob Tare woman was, they're uh, hugely important and and you know went to considerable lengths to, to 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 break the social conventions of their own societies as well as assault uh, the political authority of the colonial powers so that that's a crucial story in in many ways i think that the bobbed head woman is an interesting incident because it shows how it can be really easy to be drawn in by 
bombs, by explosions, by assassination attempts. But do you think that it was the violence in these movements that was the most impactful? Or was it sometimes harder to pin down to key moments? Yeah, well, when I started moving from French archives to British archives to press reports to try and get to the bottom of who this woman was, it's it's quite a story. When the police get on the trail of the bobbed-haired woman, they discover she came from southern China, that she's been highly mobile. She was an assassin that could have struck uh, anywhere uh, at, uh, at any time. But it also uncovered debates that uh, she was a self-avowed anarchist, but she, in anarchist circles in Malaya, which were quite... Uh, influential at the time. She's very divisive because not all believed in the past of this very uh, uh, this very individual kind of uh, violence. And this kind of violence was being challenged by the likes of uh, Ho Chi Minh, who appears uh, in Canton about the same time, arguing that people should act more as a collective and not in these sort of acts of individual f- a fury. So violence is, a, is very divisive and it's ultimately very tragic for her. She's supposed to be part of a group, a male assassin was supposed to help her, but he didn't act. He left her to act on her own. And under police interrogations, she, she, she somewhat disavows her actions. She becomes a very tragic figure. And two years after her imprisonment, she, uh, she uh, kills herself in a jail in Kuala Lumpur. Uh, And as far as I can uh, ascertain from the the penciled notes of one of the colonial officers who was attacked by her, she hung herself by her own hair. So it's it's a tremendously evocative, for all the wrong tragic reasons, story. Um, But but it shows how, you know, how for for, for individuals there's a real sort of price to pay in adopting a path of, of, of violence. And many... Of the accounts of the underground are full of the personal anguish and people moving from one position to the other. And these d- debates were very uh, d- divisive within revolutionary circles themselves. And what the communists tried to do was canalize that into something more, you know, organized, like a Leninist organization was the model. If we take this, this movement as a whole, where do you think that its key impact lay? Did it have more of an impact on the colonising forces, um, the European colonisers, in terms of making them think, this is too much to handle, we need to get out of Asia? Or did it have a greater impact on the attitudes of people within Asia, um, within colonised populations? I think think both is true, but they, they operate on, you know, if you like, different timescales. Uh, the, the 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 experience of the Grand Grand did a, a, a lot to really galvanise colonial policing, introduce very modern forms of personal identification, surveillance of people across borders, new colonial agencies to track these individuals, and this was by the 1930s quite successful. The Dutch, after all the tribulations in their colony in the 20s, called the 30s return to a zaman normal, a normal, a normal time when proper order was restored and these outside um, inspired political forces were dismissed. But 
in in the longer term, the, the, these revolutionaries came came back, and later revolutionaries bought into this tradition. They, later Indonesian revolutionaries still debated what had gone wrong in the 1920s, still debated what had happened there to try and guide their actions in the 1940s uh, and beyond. So over a much longer time frame, they're, they're, they're important both for colonial rule and its sort of rise and uh, and fall, and also for, for nationalist movements themselves. In in the longer term, some of these these catastrophes were these revolutionary events were 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 very uh, sapping of, of of colonial rule. But this was perhaps not apparent immediately after them. If we if we take a look at these underground networks, how do you think that we need to amend our view of imperialism and decolonization in Asia? I, I, I think partly the, the time frame. We, we see very sophisticated political movements operating over long distances at a comparatively early stage of, of colonial rule. When Ho Chi Minh first leaves Vietnam and goes into to, to exile in the, the, the first uh, decade of the 20th century, that's still where a period when colonial rule is consolidating itself. So almost almost at its moment of triumph, colonial rule is being undermined within by, by these people. I think it changes our perspective on, on great epochal uh, events in the 20th century. Seen from the point of view of the underground, the First World War becomes uh, one aspect of a, a much larger story of rebellion against the colonial uh, empires. For India, one of the great stories of the First World War was the attempt by Indian revolutionaries in, in Europe, uh, in the Americas, in East and Southeast Asia, to bring war, to bring a new mutiny to India in 1915. And, 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 and this really was one of the most important events of the First World War for for, for India. And also the Cold War, some of the Cold War concerns of international subversion, a domino theory of countries, you know, falling to, 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 to communism, this great the jewel of ideologies. In a way, we, we, we can look at this as a much longer story going back into the 1920s with the, the, the Comintern assault on, on, on the European colonial empires, or even earlier into international concern about the global uh, anarchist threat even before that. So I think chronology, also uh, a sense of place changes. Some of the big events in this story are, are, are Indonesia, are, are central China, the city of Wuhan becomes an epicentre of the world revolution in, in by 1926-27. Um, so time, perspective, narrative focus, all of these can can be amended, I think, with this kind of global story. And finally, this is, I'm sure, going to be a very mixed picture, but how are these revolutionary underground movements generally remembered in Asia today? In, in many d- different ways. The Indian revolutionary movements uh, I, uh, I, I discuss around before and during and after the First World War, they led into many different strands of activity. People who followed them took very different ideological pathways later in life, some to uh, communism, some stayed with uh, anarchism, some moved more into the the mainstream of nationalism, some even adopted religious uh, nationalism. Um, 
And for that reason, I think some of the the more the internationalist figures, the, pig, the, the figures who were most insistent on the interconnected international aspect of the struggle, I think these are the people who faded a bit from memory as the the, the focus of historians came to, to rest on slightly narrower, uh, more national uh, histories. The, the internationalists were seen as less relevant, less less national, less patriotic uh, even. But I think these stories come and go. That's the nature of the underground, the image of it as this sort of mole of subversion that, you know, dives, takes a deep dive into hiding, then can emerge in different places at different times. These ideas resurface, these people's reputations rise again. Tamalaka is a very uh, good example of that in recent years, um, linked partly to the work of historians, partly to attempts to find and exhume and rebury his remains as a national hero. Uh, he's come back into to, to focus and now has a visibility within histories of Indonesian nationalism. He perhaps um, he perhaps didn't have 10 or 20 years earlier. And people like Ho Chi Minh have never been away, but uh, Ho Chi Minh as a, as a nationalist, as an internationalist, is a, is a figure that lends himself to very different interpretations over the years. So I think new generations rediscover these people and and find find new new value in in their stories. That was Tim Harper. His book Underground Asia: Global Revolutionaries and the Assault on Empire is available now published by Alan Lane. Tim is just one of the Kundal Prize shortlisted authors that we've spoken to recently. You can find conversations with the other shortlisted authors on our podcast feed. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Listen in again tomorrow when I'll be speaking to Martha Jones about African-American women's fight for the vote. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.